in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Good evening, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from Spokane, Washington, Mr. Brian Fry. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Good evening, everyone. And I'm excited because... Returning again here is Lizzie Haynes from Lexington, Kentucky. How are you doing, Lizzie? Hi there. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here. It is exciting. And just let's break the ice here a little bit. Today's movie has a lot of flashback sequences and out-of-order stellar storytelling. So, And in the spirit of the fourth dimension of time, what is a movie that gave you a great time through flashbacks and chronological order storytelling? The first movie I remember doing that was Now and Then. Did you all ever see that movie? It had uh, like Rosie O'Donnell and Demi Moore, Christina Ricci. I think I have name recognition for it, but I don't think I've ever actually seen it. Oh my gosh. Okay, so you guys, that's a classic 90s movie. It's like all about, I'm sure you've seen it done in some way, shape, or form. It's like all these friends that get together as adults, and then as they're talking about their lives, it constantly is flashing back to the time when they were kids and telling that story. It's so good. Oh my gosh. It's like a great coming-of-age movie. I'm intrigued. I think I own it. I think it's one of Jess's movies. Like she contributed like four movies to my collection. And I think that's one of them. It's worth watching for sure. Somebody out there wants to help us do this on the show. We're all, <laughs> we haven't covered it yet. So it's our quest to see them all. Brian, what about you? What's the movie that you saw that it was a good time that was told out of order? I absolutely love this movie. It's on my, I have a very short list of romantic comedies that I thoroughly enjoy. And this one is called About Time. And the premise of this movie is uh, Domal Gleason finds out when he comes of age from his father, Bill Nye, that the men in his family have the ability to go back in time. They can do as much as they want, correct things or whatever, but, you know, the further you go back, it, changes can be made. So anyway, it's a really sweet movie about how he just he basically goes back in time a bunch to to get Rachel McAdams to fall in love with him. And then, you know, they're just... It, it continues on from there, but it's called About Time, and it is a wonderfully hilarious and heartfelt movie. Well, now then, it's about time. I'd like to do both of those. I haven't seen either of them. I'm intrigued. We got one more year till we can do About Time. It was 2013. Okay. Okay. Can't touch that yet, then. Mine is going to be Memento. I love Christopher Nolan. He's the master of out-of-order storytelling, and uh, Memento is a great time. Keeps you at the edge of your seat with what's, what's going to happen next or in the past so it's a good choice brian what is our movie today we are doing the killers 1946 so not the 1950s remake of the killers and not the more recent uh katherine heigl ashton kutcher romp that is not a remake of this this yeah this is this is not that movie (laughs) that movie was so bad Oh, like, bad. <laughs> I like so my that bad. 70s show people and I was rooting for Ashton Kutcher. I'm always rooting for Ashton Kutcher and he disappointed and he can do. I watched it 
but it didn't it didn't feel good I, I will say this russ like yes i understand like from its heyday where noir came from but don't sell current noir short there have been so many fantastic film noir movies that have come out that you know just because it's not black and white doesn't mean it's not a successful noir film uh bad times at the el royale was excellent uh heat la confidential the nice guys more of a comedy noir but still it's one coming out soon i think it's called vengeance the little things with uh, remy malik denzel yeah yeah that was a great one so Brian's getting pumped. Yeah, man. I like. I, I'll. I'll give you the goods. Uh, Drive. Drive was a great noir film. Yeah. The Batman with Robert Pattinson. Yes. Yes. Would we consider that a film noir? Because I think I would. I absolutely would. I'm glad you brought that up because any time I have a chance to 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 plug my boy Rob Pat, I do it. <laughs> Hufflepuff forever. <laughs> so Edward O'Brien and Ava Gardner. Albert Decker, Sam Levine, and Burt Lancaster are starring here in this movie. It comes out in 1946, as we mentioned. It, is a, it makes $2.5 million domestically, which actually is a pretty strong showing for the year. Uh, we do not have rankings for that far back, but the number one from 1946 is the sometimes criticized Song of the South. So today people go back and say that this movie can be problematic from the Disney umbrella. IMDb gives The Killers a 7.8. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes give this 100% fresh, and the audience score is 89%, so it's well-liked. It's nominated for four Oscars. It doesn't win any of them, but it's nominated for Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing, Best Music and Score of a Dramatic Picture, and it is the Edgar Award winner for a Mystery Writers of America and Best Motion Picture. Maybe a little bit of an obscure award, but... It's an award winner for nonetheless. The AFI put it on the top 100 thrills nominations. So they didn't get it in the top 100, but it was nominated to be in there for their final selection. And AFI's top 10 gangster films, it was nominated as well, but did not quite make the top 10 cut. So this is the movie that almost was a winner in so many ways. Uh, comes in runner up for just about everything. But Fry, have you seen this movie before? I haven't. Uh, you know, I tell you, I used to tell uh, John Flack all the time that, you know, I really had a hard deck for my uh, movie watching. I really didn't venture much below the 60s on purpose. And uh, that was a mistake for years and years and years. I made that mistake. So, uh, no, this is this is fairly untapped natural resource for me which is also kind of cool in the same way because it means i've got a lot of stuff i've never seen before that that i get to enjoy now so did this go well for you as a first time watcher oh yeah this movie's fantastic all right and do you feel like it's holding up to today's times yeah i think you could you could easily set this up like verbatim and it would still be a reasonably uh popular watch i don't know if the movies like this get their due attention these days. Like this is not a common, you know, movie genre that that I feel like gets talked up enough. Little Things would be a good example of that. Movie was fantastic. I feel like it went wildly unnoticed for the most part. Now, granted, but but granted, it was during COVID, so this was not something you could see in theaters because they were all closed. It was something that went directly to HBO Max, which I appreciated because I watched it several times. And it uh, fed into my whole, you know, psychosis of 
I hate Jared Leto, but he's a really good actor. He's a good actor. Uh, so I, I hate him so much. Like, I wish he sucked. It'd be easier if he sucked. Yeah. You do have a lot of uh, anger towards that man. Lizzie, had you seen Killers from 1946 before? No, I'd never even heard of it before. I am a little bit like Fry in the sense that I feel like other than the movies here and there that my dad had asked me to watch with him on you know a random family occasion, I really hadn't gone much farther back than the 60s. This is a rare occasion for me because I am a trailer watcher. So I want to be able to know what the movie's about. I want to have my expectations set before I go into a movie. This is probably the first time I can ever remember going in completely blind where I have no idea what's going on, no idea about the plot. I just pressed play and uh, I was really pleased. I really liked it a lot. I had pretty reasonable expectations of thinking I was going to, you know, kind of give it maybe like a B minus. And I, I gotta say, I really enjoyed it. I kept my attention the whole time. And I actually makes me want to kind of get into a little bit more film noir movies, particularly movies of 1940s, 1950s, just because I think it really does set a great foundation for a lot of amazing stories that are told now. Like Fry was saying, I think it can get plucked and kind of put in today's world and set the president for a lot of good stories. Yeah. And this all makes me very happy. This is my dealer's choice. I only get a couple of these every now and again. I went in blind myself and I just said, this is something the show needs to do. I had so much fun doing Laura from last year, which was a 1940s noir movie as well. And I, I said, let's go back to that well again. My thirst is maybe only increasing as I'm in, in, ingesting more of this. So I had a great time with this too, if you couldn't tell. So I've been excited for this episode. So I truly didn't know what I was getting in for. We will spoil this movie, however. So if you have not seen The Killers from 1946, do yourself a favor. Watch it. And don't watch the Ashton Kutcher, Catherine Heigl one. And we will be back after these messages. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back. And for those who haven't seen The Killer since 1946, Fry, do you want to refresh people's memories? Two hitmen, Max and Al, arrive in Brentwood, New Jersey to kill Pete Lund, a former boxer known as the Swede. After being confronted by the pair in a diner, Lund's co-worker Nick Adams warns him. Strangely, Lund makes no attempt to flee and is shot in his room. The Swede is soon to be revealed to have really been named Ollie Anderson. A life insurance investigator, Jim Reardon, is assigned to find and pay the beneficiary of Swede's $2,500 policy. Tracking down and interviewing the dead man's friends and associates, Reardon doggedly pieces together his story. Philadelphia Police Lieutenant Sam Lebensky, a longtime friend of Swede's, 
is particularly helpful. It is revered that Swede's boxing career was cut short by a hand injury. Rejecting Lemensky's suggestion to join the police force, Swede becomes mixed up with crime boss Big Jim Colfax and drops his girlfriend Lily for a more glamorous Kitty Collins. When Lebensky catches Kitty wearing stolen jewelry, the Swede confesses to the crime and serves three years in prison. After completing his sentence, the Swede, Dum Dum Clark, and Blinky Franklin are recruited for payroll robbery in Hackensack, New Jersey, masterminded by Colfax. Com complicating matters, the fact is that Kitty is now with Colfax. The robbery nets the gang about $250,000. When their boarding house allegedly burns down, all of the gang members but the Swede are notified of the new rendezvous place. Kitty tells the Swede that he's being double-crossed by his associates, inciting him to take all the money at gunpoint and flee. Kitty meets up with him later in Atlantic City and disappears with the money herself. In the present, Reardon stakes out the hotel where Swede was killed. He witnesses Dum Dum sneaking into the building, searching for a clue that might lead him to the loot. Reardon confronts him, but he flees before he can be arrested. Reardon subsequently receives a confession that the safe house fire occurred later than uh, it was alleged to have. With this piece of information, Reardon then becomes convinced that Colfax and Kitty set up Swede from the beginning and were responsible for his murder. Reardon goes to visit Colfax, now a successful building contractor in Pittsburgh. When confronted, Colfax claims he has no knowledge of Kitty's whereabouts. Reardon lies, claiming he has enough evidence to convict Kitty. A short time later, Reardon receives a phone call from Kitty, who suggests they meet at a nightclub. And Kitty claims she convinced the Swede that the others were double-crossing him, so he would take her away from Colfax. She admits to have taken the money, and after meeting with Swede in Atlantic City, she agrees to offer Colfax as a fall guy to save herself. While Kitty goes to the ladies' room to powder her nose, Max and Al arrive at the nightclub to kill Reardon. Anticipating that confrontation, Reardon and Lebensky manage to slay both hitmen instead. When Reardon goes to get Kitty, he discovers she has esca escaped through the bathroom window. Reardon and Lebensky depart the nightclub and head to Colfax's mansion, where they arrive to find Dum Dum and Colfax mortally wounded each other in a violent shootout only moments before. Lebensky asks Colfax, barely hanging on, why he had the Swede killed. Colfax finally admits to the contract, saying he feared the other gang members would locate Swede and realize that Colfax and Kitty had double-crossed them and absconded with the money. Kitty, kneeling beside her husband, begs him to exonerate her in a deathbed confession, but he dies first. Okay, well done, well done. This is a flashback movie, in which we had covered recently. You mentioned in the Frailty episode that you enjoy this. Chad, who's not on with us tonight, said that he does not like this. I do like this. Lizzie, do you like these flashback kind of storytelling movies? I do. I think, well, it makes me kind of feel a little bit like I'm a part of the story along with the detective. I know in this particular case, he's not really a detective. He kind of acts like one, even though he's an insurance agent. But I think you're piecing together the story in real time as you're watching it. And to me, I think that feels like a lot of fun. I think just watching the movie happen in sequential order and then flashing back to the insurance agent kind of coming to the realization of all of the events that have transpired, while would be fine, it just adds a lot more thrill, I think, to the overall movie experience. It's funny you mentioned he's an insurance agent. I felt myself going like, this is the most interesting an insurance agent's job can be. I mean, right? <laughs> and it's because he pseudo turned his job into detective. I kept like he kept arguing with his boss of like, I'm going to look into this. I don't think you should. I'm gonna. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think Flo is definitely not having that much fun at her job, like 100%. <laughs> exactly. I don't think Flo walks into Geico and says, I'm going to be looking into this murder mystery. We don't need to. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna. <laughs> exactly. By the way, here's my expense report. I didn't say you could do this. <laughs> Why don't I fire her? She just, she won't stop. <laughs> this movie starts off pretty exciting. This movie gets my attention right away. It's tense right from the get-go, like in the diner scene. It sets the tone right away. And there's not, like, that's even before the, the big mystery kicks in of, like, hey, why'd this guy just let himself get killed? What was that ride like for you? Like, this is, that's the Hemingway part of this, because, like, the, only the first part of it's Hemingway, and the, amazingly, they adapted the rest of it to create a movie off of that. I mean, it starts off with a lot of promise. Uh, I was wondering, like, what sort of parallels can be made to it, but it's called Albino Alligator. Basically, it's something I started watching a couple weeks ago and just never had a chance to get back to it. But it literally starts the exact same way this movie does. Two guys, except it's you know coming into a bar instead of a diner. Like I was I was intrigued immediately because I had seen another movie that started off like this, and I was like, oh well, you know, this is this is a good way to start a movie. Here's the question: If you know, you guys ever play that game where you think to yourself, like you watch a movie. And then you ask yourself, if this movie hadn't been made, would this other movie ever exist? Right. Just based on the way that it kind of borrows from that plot. Like, for example, like I used to do that a lot with, like I say, if there had been no Les Mis, not the Hugh Jackman version, but just like the novel, the Victor Hugo novel in general, there would be no Shawshank Redemption. That's like what I like to pull as an example. But like... Like for that. this movie, for this opening scene in the diner, I question if Pulp Fiction would have opened the same way if the killers had never happened. I like your game, that... by the way. I like that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a very fun game. But I think just looking at it's John Travolta and Samuel Jackson in the diner together, and then the other characters hold up that particular diner while they're there, and then all of the events unfold in the movie kind of reminded me a little bit of this opening scene of there's just so much action packed and then the entire movie unfolds afterwards and we have seen the flashback before like they're not the only ones who have done it like double indemnity mildred pierce and citizen kane well obviously perhaps most notably did all of this in that same decade by the way so it's like this is something that's happening in cinema at the time but i i think it's also interesting like it certainly doesn't feel tread it doesn't feel carbon copied it doesn't feel cliche here it's just a very effective way of telling the story i'm drawn in from the mystery and i'll be honest with you i had to watch this in a couple segments i watched my movies late at night and i was so tired but i really was at the edge of my seat like of like wanting to know what happened next and like it's it's divided into chapters really well so that you can put it down and come back to it like a book i was surprised to see that hemingway didn't write all of it that he had only written the first part of it because it, it all went together so well. And I, I was really intrigued. You know, I woke up the next morning. I didn't have time to just keep watching. I really wanted to. I don't always have that like with a movie. So uh, maybe it's chapter like nature. I was really interested to see what was going to happen next. It's cool to see who's who. And you don't really know who the main character is because it's decentralized. And it's all weaving together this guy who you know is dead. You know, he's not going to make it. But why did he let himself with so much life in front of him, just get shot. 
this is a bold claim, but I find this is a more rewarding journey and resolution than even Citizen Kane, which is greatest movie of all time, according to the AFI. So that's a hot take, but. It's a cool practice to start thinking like, oh, what other notable diners, you know, sequences have I seen? It definitely makes for like a creepier or no, I'm sorry, not a creepier, but a more rewarding ending. Because to your to your point, Russell, when you've got anxiety over how the movie is going to end, it kind of tames a little bit of that knowing that your main character is dead. So you're like, I don't have to freak out wondering if you're going to make it or not, because I already know that you're not. So it's fine. Yeah, and it's widely believed that Ernest Hemingway based his story on a mob hit of a boxer, Andre Anderson, who was gunned down in Chicago in, in the 20s. And uh, Anderson once fought a future heavyweight champ, Jack Dempsey, in, uh, in a draw in a 16, 1916 match. And so this likely was the beginning of Hemingway getting a piece of this. But it's just kind of interesting to see, like, so it's based a little bit in reality, based a little bit on this Hemingway short story. It's not like a whole, like I said, they didn't have a whole movie to work with. That's so creative. They added characters in there, the character of Kitty. And like all of that resolution, like all that meaning that comes into this. I got to say, the short story seems like something that I haven't read it, but I am curious to sit there and go like, hmm, please keep writing. This was far more rewarding to get all these other things to go with it. Sure. Mystery wise, I don't think we get to enjoy the just simple solving of mysteries often enough in movies right now. I, I think I'm a big sucker for, like like you said, Lizzie, a detective, which is, effectively is one. I don't know where that went, but I like it. I do too. I think there's something so fun about a whodunit. And in, in, in this case, it's, it's a why. There's just something so fun about it. And it's a really simple formula really you know even whether you're going back and forth and cutting through time or whether you're going to tell it in sequential order you know just being able to get to that story and then get to that reward at the end that gratification of kind of having the pieces put together it's not really done that much anymore I think that it's kind of now sexy I guess to have things be really open for interpretation which is nice, and I think that there's absolutely a place for that in cinema, and it's there's a need for it, but there is something very comforting about having all the answers at the very end. If you just died and said something super cryptic to set somebody on a manhunt for your final words, Fry, like, you can't do any better than, like, I did something wrong once. Thanks for coming. <laughs> like... <laughs> If there was ever a cliffhanger, like, what, what is it that you're saying to make somebody like, I have to find out what this man is? <laughs> I don't, th- I, I, I think you guys are watching the wrong movies. I think whodunit's still a thing. I think I disagree with it, that it's not something utilized anymore. I do think it's very underrated and unspoken of, but I, it's, it's probably my favorite style of storytelling. Like, I like a movie that can really knock me off my feet at the end of it. So that's one of the things we were talking about in Frailty. Think about it. This movie is nominated for four Oscars. You don't see whodunits, detective, mystery kind of things like this getting nominated for Oscars. 
at all anymore. No, oh, totally, totally agree with that. But something like the usual suspects or Knives Out. I mean, you know, I, I'm just tossing out various decades who done it movies, but they're out. You just gotta find them. The resurgence of Agatha Christie movies right now with Murder on the Orient Express and stuff like that. You know, I know it's been yes. done already, but I am going to see bodies 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 tomorrow yes and that kind of is going to be it looks according to the trailer like a little bit of a whodunit mix mixed with like maybe gossip girl maybe if the two of them had a baby murder on the orient express had a child with uh with gossip girl i think that would give me bodies 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 we'll see I like it. i'll report back one thing that I think is really cool here is they're layering on additional mysteries as they go through because it's not like the last bomb drop he you know, he drops. He says, like, she's gone, she's gone, breaks the window. He's about to kill himself and jump out the window. And you're really confused at that, of like, what happened where? Like, even as the movie's going on, you get the gist that it might be Kitty, but you don't know that she takes all of his money, like, plots him, like, puts him in this case. And, like, this is, ma- this is like, mind manipulation to the finest. Like, she totally turns him into, like, a little puppet. Like, she's cunning. She's a great villain. Kitty is. For sure. Lizzie, do you like this character? I kind of ended up liking her, even though she's she's devious. Kitty? I really wish that they would have expanded a little bit on Kitty. I appreciate that they couldn't because that would kind of maybe give a little bit too much away. But I have to say, there's a scene where she's wearing, I think it's like a spider brooch. It's a dragonfly, I thought, right? Dragonfly, yes. Okay, you're, you're probably right. Where it's like she holds up that infamous scarf handkerchief to kind of disguise it. And then eventually later it's discovered that it's been stolen. And, you know, and the Lipinski is going to have to take her in for it and in a pinch, as they call it. And I think in that moment, when she was so ready and willing for Swede to take the fall for her. It's like she's just, that should have been the foreshadowing moment right there that she is just no good because she had absolutely no remorse. Swede had no idea what was going on. And she, you know, in the beginning when she's singing her song and she's all confident, and that's to me like her true colors is like this vixeny woman. And then she immediately goes into like the, the big doe eyes of like, you know, Swede, don't let them do this to me. And I just, think he should have known right then and there that she was no good. I thought it was actually going to be the beginning of something, you know, I thought this was an honorable thing and nope, she does not visit him. And like, even Charleston's kind of like, like when Charleston gets out of jail, she's like, go check up on her for me, please. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't want to be the guy to tell you this, but she hasn't like talked to you in two <laughs> years. So, I mean, it's probably not a good idea for me to check. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll go check out her. He's just not that into you wasn't uh, wasn't written yet. So he couldn't unfortunately give give him a copy. But I think that was really the biggest problem is, you know, Kitty's not that into him. But justice for Lily. Really, that's that's what this whole movie is really about. Lily is awesome. She's like all about the Swede. She likes Ollie a lot. And he takes her on the worst date ever. (laughs) Yes. She doesn't want to go to this party. He forces her to go in. It's full of criminals. And she's not comfortable from the get-go in about mm, three minutes from walking in the door after saying, like, I don't think I want to go. You go on your own. As soon as he walks in the door, he sees this woman. She's beautiful by the piano. His jaw hits the floor. His tongue rolls out like a carpet, like in Looney Tunes. His eyes bug out of his head. His ears, like, have steam coming out of them. And he's, like, going, like, Aruga! Yep. <laughs> and she's just like, um, yeah, this, this is not 
this is not what I signed up for. This is this is very disappointing. <laughs> yes, justice for Lily. And and I gotta tell you, I I think she's the prettier of the two. Whoa. I would agree with that. Whoa. I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. I think that you know I'm sure that underneath her dress she has something similar to what Kitty's working with, but she doesn't need to show it off for the entire world and. You know, she's got a gorgeous face and she is loyal above all else. And Kitty doesn't have that going for her. The dangerous, yeah. the dangerous woman did not lure you in on this one, Fried. That, I'm surprised. Normally this seems like the dark, mysterious, th- uh, you're breaking your type here. I agree. I, <laughs> I agree. Uh, but I, I just remember thinking that entire sequence that she was just talking about, about, you know, that both of you were talking about, you know, with them just oogling her. And I'm sitting there like, you didn't bring someone ugly to this party. And then as the movie went on and you kind of see the happy life she ended up with, I was like, there's not a class difference between the two of them in terms of attractiveness. I'll put it that way. They're in the same league. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this doesn't speak well for Ollie more than it does her. Like, I mean, she's obviously has him in the palm of her hands and she knows it too. There's another scene like where there's a poker game going and, you know, he puts his cards on the table and Ollie, like, hits him. And everybody else at the table is like, why did he hit him? Like, he shouldn't have hit him. It's just like, he was just looking for an excuse to hit him because, you know, he had threatened. He's like, you're going to get it if you don't shut up. Ollie was ready to be the knight in shining armor for her again after serving two years in prison for her. Like, so right away, he's he's absolutely smitten with Ava Gardner's characters. I don't know. Bro. I think she is very pretty. I get I get how she could do the whole, like, why don't you rob this bank for me? It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my it's lord. It's like comparing Jessica Rabbit to Elle Woods. <laughs> you know, they're just, it's like apples and oranges. They're just way too different to make like a full comparison. But I agree with Fry. They're, even though they're super different, they're not in different leagues. Does it make you really like Sam Levine's character? The, the detective, the actual detective you know, former best friend of Ollie, who's like sitting there like, he's like, I still would take you to dinner. And she like completely ignores him. And it's like, nah, I'm for this Ollie guy. <laughs> and he's like, still would take you to dinner. And like, he's like, he's, <laughs> he's, 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 he doesn't lose his spirit. He just, he holds by. And then when, when Ollie leaves her high and dry, he's like, I'll still take you to dinner. <laughs> it's a solid play. All right. First off, I would argue that the Swede is not the main character of this. I think that that I would make that argument, and I would say that he's also probably one of the more detestable characters in this film, almost to the point where I would say that he and Ava Gardner deserve one another in a way. He's very classic brawn over brain, and I would say that uh, the money detective is is probably my my pick for primary character. So Ed O'Brien here. To a Jim Reardon insurance detective is is really the guy that you like, Mr. I won't stop until I find this. And then even though, like, the final resolution at the end I, I thought was very amusing. I actually like the lighthearted finish of, like, congratulations. We'll lower the interest rates next year one-tenth of a cent. Good job. Not, thank you. All that two weeks of work. Good job. <laughs> That's all you did. Right. Well, I like the doggedness, first and foremost. I like the doggedness. And everything that Burt Lancaster is doing in this film is attributable to what Ed's work, Ed O'Brien's work. So it, I just think that, that, yes, the story is Burt Lancaster's story, but it's told through the detecting of Jim. 
So one of the things that I think is interesting, we're touching on the actors here a little bit now, is like I'm willing to bet, being that none of us have spent tons of time with these movies here, this is a breakthrough performance for Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner. She's in a couple of movies, but like minor roles. She's actually lent out from MGM Studio because back then you had like studio contracts. You could only work with one studio unless they said it was okay. Really weird by today's standards, but that's how it was. And Burt Lancaster was an acrobat before this. And so this is a big up and coming for both of them. Lancaster's not even billed that high in the billing. And right now, Ed O'Brien is really the bigger name actor, but this pole vaults both of their careers. They become major stars and they're in some iconic roles. Coming in and seeing all these actors, what was that like to be like, oh, this is the beginning of some pretty big acting careers? I think the expectation sometimes, and this is my own fault in thinking this way, but um, so every year at Christmas time, we watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And sometimes I. I love that movie. It's such an amazing movie. But I always watch the main character, the actor, Jimmy. I always watch him in like that shaky quality that he has to his voice. And it's lovable, but it's also super obnoxious. You know what I'm talking <laughs> about? Where it's like, Mary, you know? And it's... I, so sometimes I see black and white movie, you know, particularly made pre-1960s. And I just... I tend to think that... It's going to be actors that are just like that, like super overacting and really dramatic. And I have to say, I was really pleasantly surprised. It, aside from the actual like black and white and kind of effects and the things that just kind of go with the times, the acting in and of itself, I think was really fantastic. I think you could truly like kind of pluck it and put it in today's in today's movies and it would hold up next to you know our big actors of today i think they did a great job lancaster's act asked to do a, a fair bit i think to be point brian like yes he's a meathead but he's he's mentally or he's he's emotionally distraught in the beginning and like he has this despair about him and i i think that he's doing an amazing job for an early actor for doing all of that and carrying that that role there but ava gardner i want to say man she was lightning in a bottle, like the scene where she's just like, you touch me, and you're not going to live to see it tomorrow. It's just like, oh, yeah, this is somebody with a backbone. She brought it with a lot of confidence. I can easily see why she would go on to be an Oscar winning actress. And she's so often remembered as just being Frank Sinatra's wife for a period of time. But she really is quite accomplished on her own. At the time, she was in the tabloids a lot uh, because, you know, she was manizing. I guess is the is the word for it, which was frowned upon at the time. She wasn't a one guy kind of gal. If you had to pick one, the killing or asphalt jungle? The killers. Or yeah, sorry. Yeah, the killers. Yeah. The killers. Okay. The killers for me. L- Lizzie, Lizzie, have you seen the asphalt jungle? I have not. Okay. No. Right. If you ever end up watching it, you got to come on to either the show again or leave a comment on the Facebook page on which one you would pick. Brian's shaming okay, somebody we'll for coming on the show and having not watched every movie and listened to every single episode we've ever made. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at, look, look, we, we've already bonded over the fact that we didn't watch any old movies, you know, growing up and stuff. That's right. So we're, we're literally on the same page. I would not have seen Asphalt Jungle if it weren't for the show. So I, I'm just curious, given that that heisty bank robbery sort of piece is is um similar in the two films i was just i was just curious where everybody stood we don't approve of this quizzing people but by the way did you see episode six tremors (laughs) i think it's cool to see i can see it in both of them both lancaster and gardner i I can really see like 
I get why they got bigger roles and they got to be bigger stars. In terms of Ava Gardner, I'm sad to see that her personal life, in retrospect, tends to be what overshadows her on-screen performances. She didn't fancy herself as a great actress, but she kept knocking it out over and over and over again. She really does. That very last scene with her, with the, she has to evoke so much emotion you know the kitty just tell him kitty is innocent kitty is innocent and yeah and you do for like a split second feel a little sorry for her. not enough to actually want him to say it of course but just enough that you can kind of appreciate why these men get so spellbound by her because she's just so devastated and upset you just there's a part of you that like the empath in you gets activated watching those tears. She did great. Well, one thing that does keep this in 46 that I don't know if it would evolve or it would change if you rewrote it today, but at this point in time, she's trapped under these guys' thumb. Like she doesn't necessarily, like she can't give her opinion in a room and people hear her out in a way that I would like to think that maybe you could today. And so she uses her looks and her acting uh, like you know the character's acting ability to get what she wants and which is you know it's manipulative it's devious but i mean in your station in life as a woman in the 1940s and stuff like that you may not be given the time of day in other ways and it's kind of cool to see how she's able to quite honestly con all these cons she's the smartest one in the room and people are underestimating her and honestly this is one of the reasons like even though she's a villain even though she's doing terrible things and just like using the Swede and Chad right now would be sitting here going like, this is terrible. I hate this character. I, there's something I kind of admire in, in her in a way that just says like, you know what? I'm actually the one in charge, even though nobody realizes it right now. I think I disagree with the core of that argument, though. I actually think that she is. I mean, I, I agree that she uses her wiles to her advantage absolutely but you heard her in the safe house where she's like you lay a hand on me you're not waking up tomorrow i mean kitty's got claws so <laughs> no you know i'm not doubting the the plight of of women in the 1940s but i also think that that is a it is a charade and if push came to shove that's just her first line of defense her second line is she'll shoot you in the face. When she's pleading with him to wake up and set her free and everything, I'd be like, nope, off to jail. Like, I had, I had zero sympathy, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, there was, the, like... One of the things that I thought, like, was aged to me was watching Ed O'Brien talk to his secretary. Like, it was so talking down to ordering, like, things, like, at a rapid pace and, like, telling her, like, things. It's just, it didn't feel like, like, she's helping you out. Like, solve your mystery. And uh, it was very much a... Here, take this notes, and I want to, and I want a donut and a coffee on my table. You see that in the way that people talk down to their their perceived inferiors throughout the movie. I mean, Burt Lancaster. That's true. He's like, wash my windows, check check my oil, check my back tires. So I just think that there's there's a classist elitism that existed back then. That you know, is it true for the women? Absolutely. I'm not trying to argue that at all. But it is a classist system anyway. You've got a guy who's got boxer's hands and this dude's ordering him around and, and frankly enjoying it. 
I guess my point is, I don't think she's fragile at all. I think like the whole the whole movie. By the time I realized how deep in it she was, there there wasn't sympathy for her. I think that the right things happened to the right people at the end of the film. I think in terms of using her wiles to get ahead, I think I I gotta be honest. I kind of agree with with Fry. I mean, I think that. What is it that she really wanted? You know, I think that's the kind of big thing because really looking at it, she admitted at one point whether or not it was truthful, we'll never know. But she made a comment about how much she hated her life and how desperately she wanted to get out. And I think that it's very clear that Kitty's chasing all of the wrong things. She's chasing money and power and thinking that that's synonymous with freedom And so she's going about it by, you know, mixing up with the wrong people. But I think you take a look at somebody like Lily and, you know, Lily's not, I would think based on the dynamic that she has with her husband, she's not under his thumb. I get, I got the impression that they were very much equals. So I think even though it was the 40s and times were very different for women back then, absolutely, there's no doubt about that. I also think that... Kitty didn't need to be a double-crossing tyrant in order to get her way and to be free. I think that she just needed to not surround herself with a bunch of scoundrels, quite frankly. And I think that she could have probably lived a pretty nice life. That does it then. I'm I'm a devious person myself to find this character and go like, ooh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I... I I, I think you can say that also about any of these characters. Well, if they were brought up differently, then they would be different people. I think that there's something rotten there in the first That's place. fair. I guess well, she did it. say, she she warned him. She says, I'm poisoned. I Anybody totally who comes agree. next to me gets it. Yes. Yeah. I don't think that Kitty's a victim of being born in the wrong decade. I just think she's a bad person. Yeah. Like, like yeah. If, if she like if she was born right now, it would be fair. some like, monster That's stuff. Now... Uh, as I mentioned, this is based on a Hemingway story. He likes it. He doesn't. He's been massively critical of of other works of his, but he did like this one. Maybe it's because it's a shorter story, but he liked the adaptation. It had many of the things that he liked. This devious woman that is the downfall of this character, and the dark kind of tones of it. Hemingway put a seal of approval on there, and so that's kind of cool. A hard to please guy. They, uh, they paid thirty six thousand dollars for the screen rights for this story, and it was claimed that. 50,000, which was an independent production. So the screenplay was later went uncredited during the contract, but Richard Brooks and John Huston did it. John Huston, if you recall, is the director of Maltese Falcon, who I know you like this movie, Brian. So yes, he has his fingerprints on this too. To make more things that you like, connect to more things that you like, which I know you always like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I, I, Russ. I got to tell you, I think I might need a a like tally counter <laughs> for this episode. This might be the most I've ever heard you say the word like. <laughs> <laughs> but Hemingway, they said that he, uh, the dialogue was very much like taken off the page for the first thirteen minutes of the film. To be clear, and then everything after that was was newly created and developed from just questions that were raised about the Swede's character that were left unanswered. Man, if you can take something that unfinished, it made me sit there and wonder, like, man, what else can Richard Brooks and John Huston turn into? Just write these guys one page and hand it to them and let them finish it. 
That's a good idea for writing a movie from now on. That's what I say. Um, I feel like that's exactly what James <laughs> Patterson does now. Like, he was wildly <laughs> successful writing mystery novels like, you know, Kiss the Girls, Along Came a Spider, you know, really good, good literature. But anyway, now he mass produces these books with other writers, and I swear he's like, okay, this one's going to be a heist with you know, a female detective, and it needs to happen in San Francisco, and it's going to be like a girl Dirty Harry. And then they go off and write the book for him. And then his name gets plastered all over the front of it with like, and Maxine Flinch. And it's like, dude, do you just have a bunch of writers chained up in your basement? And you're like, right, right. And they all, they literally all go under his name. So. All I'm saying, though, is I feel like that does happen. I feel like that is basically what screenwriting and adaptations are. None of us have seen any of his movies, so other than this one, this is this is pretty much at the top of his pile. He's totally a noir guy. Like, the producers got him to do what he does. This is what he does, and he's doing it well here. So do you like Robert Siodmik doing what he does best, apparently, at the time? I like the style for sure. I think I, I would imagine that he is the one to give credit to in terms of the story really being shot out of sequence. I I really enjoyed that. I think to me, he gives me kind of Quentin Tarantino vibes a little bit. I don't know if that is a fair parallel to draw, but just this kind of idea that you're piecing together a story kind of uh, shot by shot, if you will, kind of reminded me a little bit of that. And of course, there's the, the diner scene, Pulp Fiction, and then the heist. Reservoir Dogs. No feet, though. You no, know, I can't. Uh, yeah, there's no feet. That's very true. And it's lacking wildly foul language. There's not 250 verses of the end. Uses Aside of the from N-word. that, I would say that. <laughs> exactly. Man, J- I would Django say really was that, a rough watch. I think Laura was a prettier movie that we had covered. Otto Preminger had done. But I think the storytelling here is every bit as good. It's really solid storytelling. And I think the mystery, it didn't become plainly obvious to me everything that was happening. That's kind of hard to do. I think that's one reason why sometimes it feels like cheap detective TV sometimes, which kind of ruins some of the genre, I think, from people's perceptions. But I think he did keep the balance going really well. Like, he gave you enough characters that kept you moving, you're shifting your focus and keeping your interest and keeping it going. It's all presented very well. And this movie is covers a lot of ground. It's not that long either efficient yes yes agreed efficient is a good word for it there are a couple times during this movie where i was wondering is this movie too long every time i came back around to no no it's not like i wouldn't necessarily cut anything but it is long i feel like for a noir movie especially a noir movie of that time i feel like it's it's an outlier really it's like did it not feel i i guess it it felt long. It's just, it's something I thought about several times. The, the reason I'm mentioning it is I rarely have the thought. It's an hour 43. It's not that long. You want to talk about another flashback movie that keeps you seated there for so long? It was with Citizen Kane. I'm going to, I'm going to knock it now. Like I lose interest in Citizen Kane at some point. It's just like, and the payoff is so not there. And I don't feel like this movie suffers from either of those things. And by the way, Citizen Kane is a pretty movie. Like it's, technically well made but i don't find it to be enjoyable 
This movie is set in a small town of generic Brentwood, New Jersey, 1946. I did like this atmosphere that we're in, and I did like the seedy underbellies and the boxing match part of this, which was surprisingly good for the time. The fight scenes of the boxing were good enough that I actually found myself doing the opposite of you, Fry. I was like, I could have spent some more time doing some boxing in this. Show me a scene from when he was good before he hurt his hand. This movie's only 143. I could, I could tack on another 10. Doing some more boxing would be a place where I would add. The boxing scene actually led to my first incorrect assumption about the movie. When he said, I did something bad one time, I thought he threw that fight initially. Oh. And it, and Ooh, it, that would have been good. And it lost people money, and he had to go on the lam after, after basically not doing what he was supposed to do. That did cross my mind. Oh, did he get tangled up with the wrong people by winning or losing a fight when he should not be winning or losing? Right. So that messed me up. Uh, the fact that he was actually knocked out in the fight and that all that was real, that, that was actually a surprise. I did find Lily's. You would have had him for sure if you just hadn't used your right hand. <laughs> it's like, like, I know. That's why I lost. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> John Madden. <laughs> If he could have used both hands, he would have had a better chance in that fight. <laughs> Listen, is there something about the, the times that you actually like about the 40s? Because we've talked about like how this could be brought up to today's day, but do you like traveling back to this time period in this movie? Yeah, I think it's fun. I think it's definitely really fun to kind of go back into the time machine and see that. I think that there is something to be said about there being a simpler time. I had a conversation about this with my cousin the last time that I saw him of we were at a festival and it was in a place where cell phone service wasn't working. It was just like a big Irish festival in his hometown. And it was like, isn't this so great that like, if I want to find you, if like, if we, if you go over to this area of the festival and I go over here, like our cell phones won't work. So we'll have to see what it was like to actually just have to search for each other and find each other in like, a, just like an organic way. And there's something about going back in time that I do really appreciate because everything just feels more holistic when you take technology out of it. And when you take kind of this just where we are with just our world and our politics and everything. And it, it sounds super cheesy, but it does in a lot of ways just feel a lot simpler. I love that. But I have to say, in all honesty, you know, the game that everybody always plays of like, if you were born in a different decade, 40s would not be my choice. I think it was not a good time to be a yes. woman, as we've already discussed. I want a little bit more pizzazz. I think that there's, I would imagine I would get bored easily. Well, there's a war going on and rationing and having the whole country turned up on its end for World War II. There's a reason people sit there and Very go, like, fair. Yeah, the 50s, because you're coming out of the hardship of the 40s. Yes. So I don't think people would pick the 40s necessarily. It's a time when we did a lot of inspiring things like advancing technology and on the other hand, and we face great adversity. But on the other hand, yeah, I don't think you're. I don't think you're wrong. I don't think anybody's like, yeah, I'm sign me up for the 30s, 40s. That those are two decades I'd like to get a piece of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even if you're tempted to go back to the 20s, which right. that does seem like a fun time, you got to go through the next two decades, and that doesn't sound so good anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think I'd be into messing with Great Depression era nope. uh, very much. However, I was a big fan of the movie The Highwayman that uh, premiered on Netflix, and 
I do dig the cars. I like the idea of the open road during that time. I think like any decade, if you're going to choose one, there's going to be some baggage that comes along with it. It just depends on what baggage you're willing to put up with. And the baggage here is Ali has a very short tie and he's a very broad chested, good looking like dude, like he's like he's he's ripped. And that that is not enough tie for that much man. That is my that is my official stance on his tie. Fat guy in a little <laughs> coat. What about that one dude that had like the carpet tie? You know what I'm talking about? The tie toward the end where the it's like yeah. it's cut. It's like a square at the end. And the and the underside is longer than the the upper side. Yeah. And it looks like it's like woven. Like what I is was that? like, what, what is that thing? Yeah. What is that? What is what is that? There's an old Marx Brothers movie where Harper goes around with like scissors just cutting people's ties off and then putting them in his pocket and like they look at him like he's from Mars. It's just very funny, the <laughs> reoccurring thing that he does. But it it does look like a tie that Harpo walked over and then just cut the tip of it off and then kept going. Hats. Everybody's got hats. Right on. The hat game is strong, I will say, that I do love a good hat. But I think I wish you go back to that. Yeah, I, I do really love a good hat. Being in Kentucky, you know, there's always that special time in May where everybody gets to whip out a hat. And so I do really appreciate that. But aside from a baseball cap, no one's really rocking a hat on a daily basis. I will say everybody takes dressing really seriously, basically up until probably, I guess, pro- probably like the 60s? 60s, 70s, yeah, I think. But, I mean, you never really see anybody dressed casually. There really is no such thing as casual dress. Like, it's always cocktail attire. And there is something kind of nice about that. Maybe they're just always preparing for happy hour. But, uh, which, I mean, I'm not mad at. <laughs> yeah, I, I see, I could get behind that. Yes. <laughs> and, and I think Jess would be behind me on this. So Jess is my wife. She has been waiting for the chance to go to the Kentucky Derby specifically to go hat shopping. I bring back hats, man. Like bring back hats, all all the hats, and maybe we'll come up with some new cool hats. But yeah, hats need to come back in. I no longer have my long hair, which I had for a long time. But I was, I never wore hats because. I had like really long, super curly hair and it looked like a clown, like with like when the volume of your head gets really small when you put a hat on and all this poof comes out the bottom of it. So um, I don't have that anymore. So technically (laughs) I could wear hats, but I'm just, I'm so used to just not wearing hats and getting sun in your face. So I'm adverse to caps still, but I like watching other people wear them. You can get personality with how they wear them. Like there's a difference in like how a good guy wears a hat and holds his hat and how the camera shoots them. Versus a good guy. You mean a bad guy? Yeah, good guy versus bad guy. How they're shooting them. Like, yeah. there's personality in the hats. And I don't like smoking. I think it's gross. But how characters smoke, there's a lot of personality in what they're doing with their hands. Uh, you know, Ricky Bobby struggles with knowing what to do with his hands on camera. Smoking and hats do <laughs> offer a lot of personality that, that, that the actor suddenly has to become self-conscious to, to know what to do with all this other stuff. So that brings personification Agreed. into things. So. I guess I'm giving a little bit of an apology for smoking. Don't smoke, but if you do, you can express yourself through it. Yeah, just an excuse to do body language. It's, you know, the way that you're holding the cigarette, the way that you're inhaling it and all and all the things. I mean, I, I agree. I think that it's you can absolutely put 
something else in it besides a cigarette, but it's just kind of the path of least resistance, if you will, to have someone just effortlessly standing there and giving all of these body language cues off as to their personality. So I totally agree. What's the healthy version of a cigarette? Like here, ha have an asparagus hors d'oeuvre. Like I'm going to stand here and eat my asparagus hors d'oeuvre and just, just nibble it. <laughs> you could give them a cheese stick and see if they peel it or like if it. they bite directly into it to, to be able to tell whether or not they're a bad guy. I mean, if you bite directly into it, you are just straight up evil. That's true. That's, that's science. That's science right there. See, the almond milk industry is cutting into the dairy industry real hard. It's now time to make a real hard press in Hollywood dairy industry. Get on this. Cheese sticks in movies. I like it, Lizzie. <laughs> like, this is, a, this is gold. We got something here because back then the cigarette ads like they were paying That's the studios right. like I need your I need more smoking. I need more smoking. I've got to give a, an all time movie superlative here real quick that the best smoking award goes to Kevin Spacey and the usual suspects. OK, I've never seen anyone hold a cigarette like that in my entire life. It still is. It's something that sticks out in all of film for me. Next time you watch Usual Suspect, just watch how Kevin Spacey smokes. Eva Gardner definitely has the cigarette ad in this movie. She, there's a scene like where the piano's playing and she like, yeah, she takes like a puff of a cigarette, looks at the camera like it is 100% that is paid by the cigarette company. They did everything but hold up the pack on the screen. <laughs> it's like, you too can look glamorous. <laughs> I'll for sure keep a, keep a lookout for that uh, next time I watch The Usual Suspects. I thought you were easily going to say The Caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, you, well, <laughs> uh, no, I, I get it, but no, no, just seriously, just next, next time you watch Usual Suspects, watch how Kevin Spacey smokes. So, Lizzie, this movie is nominated for its music for an Oscar. It does not win, but I don't know if you catch or not, this, the, the Dragnet theme is actually extracted from this, that dun, da dun, dun. Some iconic music moments in here. It, it goes big. 1940s music is often, they have very dialogue-driven type movies, but then the music will be very intense at the moment. Sometimes modern audiences don't connect with this. How do you feel about that? I, particularly in this movie, remember when, I can't remember his name now off the top of my head, but the patron in the diner that works with Swede that's Nick. going now to warn him. They've been freed. Yes, Nick, thank you. So he's been freed and he's running to go tell Swede that there are two men after him. And the music is so loud and it's charming because it really does feel like the score is trying to communicate how you're supposed to feel. Uh, like almost to a T where it's like, I'm just going to direct you right now. Like you should be on the edge of your seat. This is so suspenseful. He's running and running and running to Swedes. Is he going to make it in time? Is he not? Who's behind the door when Swede wakes up? Because, you know, someone's Nick has left the room, but now somebody else has entered. It's not something that I would want in every single movie. I think that, uh, you know, we were talking about The Ring a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were recording, talking about how, honestly, the absence of music in that movie really serves such a spooky purpose. And so I think that in this movie, you could pretty much say the opposite, that the music just really kind of fuels the movie and kind of helps communicate. When you have no idea what's going on, you can at least rely on the score to tell you how you're supposed to feel. Yeah, Fry, you're a music guy. Miklos Rose's score here. Do you like it? I think it's adequate. 
adequate. Uh, I don't mean that as a. I don't think it's a knock uh, per se. It, it 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 serves the movie well, I guess, but it's not something I'm writing home about. Like I wasn't like, woo. This... I thought you'd get that like pulpy like underbelly kind of thing. I get you really are a neo noir guy over a classic noir guy. I'm I'm detecting. I figured this would have hit you in the sweeter spot than that. It is, it is true. Yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. I still do have tendencies toward newer noir options, but I mean, I love seeing where it came from. So I've got I've got nothing nothing against that. I normally don't love it like when something non-dramatic happens in an older movie and then they like swell the music huge, but this movie has moments where the intensity is there. Like what Lizzie was saying like when Nick's running across town hopping the fence down the alleyway. I I was with her. Like I was just like the music's big, but the moment is big as well. Same thing at the end of the movie, like when, when she's trying to get James, uh, when Kitty's trying to get James to say, like, tell him I didn't do anything. Tell him I didn't do anything. And then you deliver that awesome line, don't ask a man to lie his way into hell. Ooh, that's yes. savage. I think this movie actually is deserving of it, which oftentimes I don't think it is. You guys want to hand out some awards? Let's, Let's do, it. do it. Lizzie, who is your MVP of The Killers? I like Lieutenant Levinsky. I think that he is, for me, he is my bo- the most valuable player just because he has a sense of loyalty to Swede. And I feel like I just, he always struck me in the movie as the guy that's always going to do the right thing. Uh, you know, even in the situation where he was the one that pinched off uh, Swede. You can still tell that he has this loyalty and this kind of um, kinship to him. And then also, like I said, I just I feel justice for Lily. She's like such an amazing character. And I love that he was courting her even when she was being courted by Swede. And I just he he's just kind of this like doofy, lovable guy. So I just I think uh, more more credit to Lebinsky. I think he was the he was the best. Okay, Sam Levine. Yeah. And by the way, I don't know if you like this theory then. I saw one guy rating the killers and he was saying that what is driving the inspector, uh, uh, you know, Jim Reardon's, like, why is he trying so hard to figure this out? Shouldn't it be Sam Levine? Sam Levine's connected to him by being his friend. Shouldn't he just be like so troubled? Maybe it comes to his doorstep through the insurance case, but maybe he's the one that would be this driven with the personal connection of like having Lily having been connected to him and himself being connected to her, whereas he's more secondary to that. Sounds like you might have been into this change, given how much you like this character. I agree. That's legit. I think that would have been would have made way more sense than an insurance guy trying to figure it all out. I super appreciate why they, you know, they needed somebody to look into it. But I agree. I think that that would have made some way more compelling motive would uh would be that friendship yeah it's a good comment in fairness yeah agreed fry what about you who's your mvp uh i went with ava gardner on this just because i really throughout the whole movie was not wise to her insidiousness until pretty much the end yeah you didn't know how you knew she was trouble but you didn't know how much yeah mine is ava gardner as well i mean she had it you hear the name but uh i now get I now get the appeal. She's super beautiful, but she's also got the acting. She made such a memorable character. I've not seen a lot of her other roles, and I'd like to see more of her in movies now. So I was also very, you know, I think we talked about like when we covered like Roman Holiday, Audrey Hepburn. I get it. I get why it's a big deal. 
Same thing with Ava Gardner. It's like, I get it. Best supporting actor, Lizzie. I put Ava Gardner for my best supporting actor, just for all the same reasons that you all mentioned. I think that she's just, she's magnanimous. She's just very fun to watch. And even though she's despicable, there's still something about her that you can't take your eyes away from. And I, just for that reason alone, I think she's, she's an amazing actress. Yeah. Brian, best supporting. I went with Albert Decker, big Jim Colfax. Oh yeah. He's good. Yeah, like the supposed mastermind of everything. Yeah, yeah. Like, I felt toward the end of the movie that he was very he was a very unsung hero of the film. I don't mean hero in the true sense of hero. I just mean that, that he was really a driver for this, that you didn't really consider him to be that important until he was. I, I was the opposite. I thought, like, this is, this is the bad guy. Like, I thought we had it pretty firmly established earlier in the movie. Oh, no, it's a bad girl. Yeah, exactly. But, like, they were kind of in it together, but she had one more card to turn on him, which is why, like, this is why I like her so much. Like, she's just, yes, she's super devious, but, like, she's super smart. Jim's smart. Like, he put all this together. Like, he's got everything seemingly planned out, but this is not somebody he can contain. You know, like, this is not somebody he can control. And so, like, it led to his own downfall. It's one thing he doesn't like. It's a double-crossing dame. That's right. Double-crossing dame. <laughs> We should bring back Dame. The word Dame needs to come back. She did what now Gen Zers call love bombing. Have you ever heard that term? No. It's like no. Uh, update me. It's, so it's this idea where, like, right off the bat, it's I'm gonna just court you as hard as I can. So I'm gonna give you like flowers and take you on trips and do all these amazing things to just make you think that I'm wildly in love with you, and then. I'll say something like, oh, you know, I can't afford to pay my rent this month and then somehow con you into just giving away. I mean, there's an amazing documentary about it on Netflix, The Tinder Swindler, about how like this man has made off with like millions of dollars from these women because he just he love bombs them into taking them on these elaborate trips and convincing them that they're match made in heaven and wildly in love and then he convinces them to take out loans for them and then that uses he uses that money to then pour it's like a pyramid scheme pours it into his next terrible his next lady and that's kind of exactly what kitty does she love bombs swede into thinking that they're going to run away together and little does he know that he's he's being swindled yeah, she doesn't even like, go for it. It's a good looking dude. She does not care. Like, that does not phase her. That does not affect the plan. You know? <laughs> um, my best supporting actor is going to go to Jack Lambert. Not the Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker, but the uh, Jack Lambert, uh, the guy who plays Dum Dum Clark. Mm. He's a good gangster. He's a scoundrel. You can tell. He has um, someone with uh, resting you-know-what face. It would be... <laughs> like resting one- unpleasant person <laughs> face? <laughs> yes. Like 100%. It's, uh, there's something very unsettling about his face. You're right. You're right. (laughs) The scene, though, where, like, he's got him held at gunpoint. The investigator, Jim, has him held at gunpoint. I really enjoyed that scene. Even then, the trick's up his sleeve. Like, you mind if I smoke? And then, like, hits him and then gets the gun from him. He's a dangerous dude in his own right. A little unpredictable. A little bit of a loose cannon. They alluded to that earlier. Good character. I don't necessarily need more in this movie, but I'm curious. This is an interesting character. I think taking that typology and using him in in a larger way in another movie would be very good. I like the character a lot. Hidden gem, Lizzie. 
I loved Vince Barnett's character. So he played Charleston. He was absolutely adorable. He gave me big Brooks vibes from Shawshank Redemption. You know, just that like really lovable, sweet old man. And, you know, he tries to help Sweet at the end. You know, I think he sniffs out that Kitty's rotten. And he's like, you know, don't. What's the line that he says? He's like, don't don't go listening to all those golden harps, Swede. They're just going to land you in a bunch of trouble. And he knows that no good is going to come out of this giant heist. And he just kind of humbly walks away. And I just found him absolutely adorable. And he's obsessed with the stars. And I'm a sucker for a sweet old man. I can't help myself. So it's it's definitely Charleston. I like that. That was another one of those mysterious lines that was like, Charleston was right. You don't even know Charleston's a person when he says that. That's right, yes. Again, one of those ubiquitous comments that just keeps you going. Brian, what about you? I just wanted to add one thing to your pick, Russ. I always thought that Dum Dum looked like Powers Booth. Okay. So if you get a, get get, yeah, a, get yeah. an opportunity, look up Powers Booth. And well, we just covered him in side. frailty, so don't, right, look, don't right, have to look far. Yeah, but look at a thumbnail side by side of him at that age. My uh, hidden gem was of uh, Virginia Christine. So Lily. Yeah, Lily. So she goes on to do Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I did not re- make that connection. Yeah. And that's the Invasion of the Body Snatchers that we covered already, huh? Yep. Oh, thank you for making connection. Wow. I, yeah. didn't, re- I, didn't, put th- I didn't piece that together. My hidden gem is going to be Phil Brown, who plays Nick at the beginning of the movie. I like this guy a lot at the beginning. He's the first flashback at the gas station to because he's at the coroner's office giving him information as well. He's pretty good. I liked him. That opening scene is very intense, and I guess I kind of put myself in his shoes. I'm just sitting there eating my own dinner, and then all of a sudden, two guys just take over the bar and start insulting the two people who are in there. Like You kind of have this moment when you're like watching him, you're like, uh, what's going on here? I would really like to leave right now. <laughs> yes. Are you a bright boy? I would just like to leave. I would like to make no comment on my brightness. <laughs> Yes, wrong place, wrong time. I mean, truly. Recast, if you had to recast somebody, Lizzie. So I had originally put R.S. Kean, I believe is the right pronunciation for that. That's the boss of the insurance company who's trying to save 0.01% or however much it is that they end up saving at the end. (laughs) The pushover of a boss. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I thought that the dynamic would have been a little cooler if instead of, because I feel like the only purpose that he really served was for our main character to be able to just kind of unwind his thoughts. Other than that, I don't really feel like he served much of a purpose. Every now and again, he had some kind of quippy line, which I do appreciate. But I thought it would have been cooler if maybe he was like at home confiding in his wife. You know, I don't know. Maybe there's some kind of like HIPAA violation that's there. I'm not I'm not quite sure if that like rolls over into insurance. But either way, I mean, we all tell our spouses anything, everything anyway. I've got an I've got an old name to toss out there if you don't. But who would you put in their shoes? Gosh, that's so hard. If I were to plop somebody in that place, I think Grace Kelly is who I would do that with. I think Grace Kelly, because even though she's absolutely stunning, she was so charming in Rear Window. And I think that that's who I would want to be his wife. Somebody who's really charming, who can kind of give him a little bit of a run for his money in terms of turn of phrase, but ultimately just like a sweet, loyal partner. I'm, I'm thinking Sydney Greenstreet, maybe. The fat man from Maltese Falcon, and he's also... One of the uh, guys who runs people out of the country in Casablanca. I think he would be good for this role. It's a good choice, though. I, I, I hadn't thought about it. He's a weak-spined character, and the actor doesn't necessarily bring it on that one. So you're right. He's got a lot of scenes. He doesn't stick with you. That's a good choice, actually. I might like it better than my own. 
Ryan, who's your recast? Recast uh, Police Lieutenant Sam Obensky. I think oh, it'd be Lizzie cool. does not like this. Oh, no, no, it, it actually has nothing to do with the cop itself, or the cop himself, but I just think that better partnering face with the other detective would be someone like Cary Grant. Oh, you're going big? Yeah, okay. Nice. Yeah, well, he definitely would be in the movie more if you did land Cary Grant for that, so. I am also going to make Lizzie sad because I also came after Sam Levine, uh, uh, police, oh. police detective Sam Lubensky. I went with Dana Andrews. I wanted just to be a little bit tougher. Uh, Dana Andrews is somebody we did. I just happened to watch Where the Sidewalk Ends, but also in Laura. He's the main investigator from Laura. I've mentioned that movie a lot this time. That's what I'm going with. Best shot, Lizzie. I'm going to go with the scene right as the door opens in the beginning scene. So at this point, Nick has already gone and warned Swede that someone has come and he sent Nick away. And there's that amazing scene when the door has reopened in the house, but they're not yet in the room with Nick. And the music is tense and there's the door and the light. It's very dark, except there's a lot of light that's illuminating around the frame of the door. And I loved that shot because to me it felt there's so much tension that's building in just this very still frame because you know exactly what's about to happen. And there's a chance that, you know, it's been done in movies before where you think you know someone's about to walk through a door but it ends up being someone completely different. And having no idea what this movie was about or who Swede was and why they wanted to to kill him, I had no idea what was going to happen and who was going to be on the other side. And Lo and behold, it was uh, it was the the killers in a, in a predictable way, but it was still such an exciting scene for me, and I, I loved that shot. Great choice, probably best shot. I absolutely love all of them crammed into that cop car. In the end, <laughs> it's the only time I laugh during the movie, and during this this sequence where they're literally all just smashed in there together, <laughs> the lieutenant looks at uh, he's like, "You got your gun?" He goes. Yeah, I do. I just it's just a weird thing to ask when you're literally on top of each other. So Well, he did have his gun taken from him. I thought it was so casual funny how like the police detective like keeps handing him guns. Here, have a gun, insurance salesman guy. That seems like a very policeman like thing to do, right? He has his gun taken from him by Dum Dum later and he's just like, I lost my gun. What happened to it? Ah, here have a gun. <laughs> the the rate at which he's just handing guns out nonchalantly as a police officer in today's times is just kind of hitting me, making me kind of go like, right. relax, don't feel bad. Here's a gun. <laughs> um, my best shot's going to be, there's an amazing shot where Ollie's leaving his boxing career and it's a it's where he turns to crime. And Sam is trying to convince him to join the police. He's talking about like, hey, you get 20000 And right away, he's like, I used to make that in a week. This is This sucks. And he's like, you get a pension in 20 years. And this is a pretty good gig for somebody out there, but this is not the track that Ollie was on. And he's had it taken away from him because his hand's been busted. And it's really upsetting for him. And there's this turn, they, they turn the corner at the street and he walks down the street. There's this really great shot where there's an overhang, so therefore they can like light it up at night more. There's a swell of light and he walks off into it and he turns into like a silhouette. And to me, it's very foreshadowing. I noticed this on the second time you watch it. Sam says that's the last time I really saw him when we lost touch after that. That is him turning to the darkness in a way, but like he turns into this dark shadow as he as he walks away. He's leaving Sam's life. He's leaving Lily. He's leaving this world that 
you know, there's nothing wrong with the world that he's in, but he's going into a, a what will ultimately become his downfall. So they say, don't go into the light. I mean, he ends up walking towards his death in doing so. And cinematically, it's just very, very poetic how they did that. And there were a lot of really good shots in this movie. You talk about things that made you laugh. When he does oogle Kitty and he turns his back, like he gets his drink and looks at her. So obviously, and in frame, she's looking at him. And, yes. And then like the waiter comes in looking at her, showing that, to your point, Fry, that she has some degree of desirability herself. And everybody's looking at somebody else. And that one shot just said it all. So, I mean, and then nobody mentioned it, but the opening scene in the diner, the, the bigger ground where everything's really black, but the diner windows are illuminated and you can see in the diner and there's just a little bit of glare on the street and stuff like that. This is some of those things that like 1940s black, white, noir stuff just puts me in the mood and sits there and go like, wow, I like all this darkness that they use then. To that point, there was a moment because it was so dark when they go in trying to order dinner and he's like, we're only ordering breakfast and they have this whole, you know, kind of dialogue as to whether they're serving breakfast or they're serving dinner. I was like, what time of day is it? I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm very confused. As to, like, it took me like a little minute to figure out that just still it very, it really confused me like very much. And I'm still a little confused by it because Swede only goes in at 6 o'clock, but they're serving breakfast. So I'm like, is this 6 a.m.? Is this 6 p.m.? Is there we breakfast for dinner, people? It's just like that was one part that really confused me still. You're not wrong. It's probably like February or January in, in New Jersey. It is confusing when the sun's down at 5 o'clock. Nobody likes it. It sucks. But that disorientation you have is how we all feel every winter, I think. so. Very true. Yes. They're very dogmatic about when they serve food there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it reminded me of Big Daddy. It was getting so upset about not having breakfast. They're like nine minutes away from serving dinner. I'm just like, can't you just take the guy's order and just let him know it'll be a little bit of time? But sure, just wait a little bit longer, okay? Can you wait 10 minutes? Yeah, but as a kid, it always annoyed me at McDonald's. They were like, oh, it's 10.01, no more breakfast. I see the hash browns. You give me the hash browns. Exactly. Ah. Figure it out. Get off, like, get off it. Come on, man. Make me an Egg McMuffin. That's right, Taco Bell. Give Fry his breakfast burrito at 11. He wants it. <laughs> if you're in the like. drive-thru when the time changes over, I think that that should count. It's oh, true. Yeah. I mean, I would get a Chick-fil-A crispy chicken biscuit at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Why do you take the biscuits away, Chick-fil-A? Tell me. It, it, it was like the only power they had over you was to tell you you couldn't have breakfast anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's superior to a bun, if you think about it. So I would eat all of their sandwiches on a biscuit just, just happily. Come to Kentucky. There's, re there's a restaurant literally called Biscuit Belly, and it's open all day long. <laughs> I probably need to visit Biscuit Belly because that sounds <laughs> terrific. That sounds like some gluttony goodness there. I, I, I would like that. So. It's amazing. Yes. Washington has terrible biscuits. It's one thing I've learned about living out here. They they have no concept of biscuit making. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, uh, I lost track completely. Okay. Yes. Best scene. Lizzie. I put the entire diner scene as my favorite scene. I just, I think that from the moment that the movie opens, from the moment that Nick leaves to run and go warn Swede to me I feel like that entire scene I, 
because especially because I had no idea what I was getting into I was on the edge of my seat. I was like, is this movie going to be violent? Are they going to shoot the 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 cook and the the manager of the restaurant, this poor patron? I mean, I had no idea what I was about to get into. And so it just absolutely thrilled me. And I, to be honest, I think that that was, for me at least, my absolute favorite part of the entire movie was that opening scene. And it was interesting for me to find out later that that was – the, the part that Ernest Hemingway came out with and, and had written. So I just, to me, that really is like the legs that the entire story stands on, 100%. Yeah, it's riveting, isn't it? Yes, I loved it. Yeah. Brian, what's your best scene? I love the, the very last scene. Tell him I'm innocent. You can save me. You can save me. Like, like that whole piece, I was just like, oh, gosh, you're a piece of work. <laughs> Well, you're going to die anyway. I mean, you may as well let me off the hook. You might as well save me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, it, she's got a point. Just throw me a bone here. You're on your way out. My best scene is definitely what Lizzie had. The, the opening scene. I was on the edge of my seat. I was hooked right away with this movie. And it totally set the tone for the whole movie. And then it follows up with the, the Swede letting himself get executed as well by these killers. So... These, these, the early going is great, and yours is actually my runner-up, Brian, so I always prepare too. So I'm just going to go ahead and say you guys nailed it. And one of the ones that I'll call attention to was the, the scene where Ollie isn't having it anymore. You're not going to double-cross me, and he comes in and gets the drop on everybody from up above. And it was so misguided. It's one of those things where everyone's like, we weren't going to double-cross you. The place literally burned down. But they were being double-crossed themselves by James. I know, they, no, they were, they were being double-crossed. He should have showed his cards. You, you think at that point that, you know, he's misguided at one point, but Jim was actually planning on pulling the money out from everybody and getting it himself. So they were getting ployed. The number of times people were screwing over each other, that's one of those things that's kind of interesting about this, and I like about this movie. Although the people here are not nice people, there's a certain degree of trust if you're going to rob a, a hat factory, which I can tell you in the 1940s, there's a lot more hats being worn. Like, it's a gold mine of money with all the hats that are being done. If you, if, you, if you raid a hat stand now, you're like, we robbed a lids in the mall. We got $200. So, but it's one of those things that's a good reminder. Yeah, Jim's not a nice guy. Dum Dum's not a nice guy. None of these guys are nice guys. And Ollie's not going to have it either. Nobody's being nice to anybody. You kind of sit there and go like, yeah, I get why Charleston doesn't want to do this anymore. It gets you in jail. Everybody fails you. Nobody's trustworthy. Yes. There's an amazing quote in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie where Jack Sparrow says, I think to Kira Knightley, where he's like, the only person that you can honestly trust is a dishonest person because you can always trust that they will be dishonest. He's like, honestly... Uh, the only person that you can't trust is an honest person because you can never predict when they're going to do something absolutely stupid. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Just like that. So why is that Jack Sparrow? Um, yes, right. <laughs> yeah. And I do want to know why the rum is gone. He's a wise man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Lizzie, uh, best wardrobe or makeup moment? I would say the handkerchief for me. I'm all about a nice piece of clothing that tends to continue to make its way throughout the movie. To me, it kind of gave me, I know obviously this came well before, but in my mind, 
I had seen it first, but it gave me kind of big mask vibes. If you remember uh, Jim Carrey's The Mask, where there's like that one pattern on his tie that yep. fell off that the detective keeps finding. I uh, know oh, it's his pajamas. Sorry, it's his pajamas. Polka or dots, his tie. right? Yeah. Yes, yes, that he keeps finding of his. To me, I, I just think there's something charming about having kind of that one piece of, of clothing that can kind of carry its way throughout the movie. And the harps kind of played a big deal into it anyway because harps themselves are, you know, kind of like an innocent symbol for, you know, angels. And it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition seeing that it was kitties. Nice. Now, Brian, it was not a Hello Kitty handkerchief, which would have been also fitting. <laughs> Fry, <laughs> um, best wardrobe or makeup moment. Is it the cutoff tie? It, 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 that is. It is. It's it's hideous in every aspect. I don't understand it. If it was a thing, <laughs> I have questions. Uh, I, it, it's just, it's awful. It's just awful. <laughs> I love how much you hate it. I love, I like how it uh, might wake you up later tonight as you're like, ab- <sighs> tie. <laughs> ah, the tie. Why? The tie. No, not the tie. <laughs> Jessica wakes up next year. What is it? This is the tie. Did you watch the movie again? No, I talked about it on the podcast, but it reminded me of the time that I watched it. Oh. Um, my best wardrobe or makeup moment. I'm a simple guy, and uh, Ava Gardner is very beautiful in her black dress when we are introduced to her. It is an iconic moment. It's a very glamorous era, and she's very glamorous. I do get how the room kind of stops when you meet her. I know you both were very flattering of Virginia, Christine, but uh, I guess I got tunnel vision for Avery Gardner as well. So black dress. You, you know what's interesting about that? The whole time I watched that movie, I assumed that dress was red. Oh, well, we don't know. That's the fun thing about black and white. It can be whatever it was. We'll never know. I truly, from square one, assumed that was a red dress. I thought she was a woman in a red dress. That would track for sure. Very Jessica Rabbit. That would work. So I like it even if it's the red dress too, by the way, that my pick still stands. So, No, I know. I just, it, it's interesting where it's like, black dress, what's he talking about? Like, I have no proof that that's a red dress, but my brain went there. It does make you wonder what colors or everything are. I, I get so tired. One thing I do like about black and white is I pay a lot more attention to framing and lighting a lot more when it's black and white. When you remove the use of color and like different colors that are being used to convey a moment and stuff like that, it makes you able to hyper-analyze other film techniques that are being used. Chad says he always wants his color. He wants the color in there, but it kind of makes me a better watcher to some degree by removing one layer. It's kind of like if you've, if you've lost your eyesight, you become extra adept at hearing and smelling and your other senses like raise. So yes. if you pull my color away as a viewer, I, I start appreciating things that I don't normally get without digging in harder. Yes. Gotcha. Change one thing, Lizzie. I wanted them to elaborate a little bit more on the hotel scene. So you have Queenie, who is the, I guess she's the hotel staff, that she's the beneficiary of all of Ollie or Swede's money. And she, when she's telling her story, you know, you've got the scene in the hotel where she comes to to turn the bed down and he's pacing back and forth you know she's gone she's gone and at that point i'm assuming that whoever he's talking about is dead and then there's you know he tries to throw himself out the window and queenie grabs him and there's not really i mean she gives like a very compelling argument about you know making sure that he protects 
his soul and that, you know, committing suicide is condemning himself to, uh, you know, to, to hell. And so I, I appreciate all of that. And I, I certainly believe that. But I think that I would have loved to have seen like a dialogue between the two of them where they were able to make some kind of like connection on a platonic level because I think he certainly owed his life to her but then to go on and make her the beneficiary of his inheritance I just think it would have been a little bit sweeter had they had like a heart to heart or something that just kind of warranted a friendship because she was almost didn't even remember him outside of the picture I mean well he he had a different name and everything I like it though because like it shows you that he had so very little in his life which is obviously why they let him gun him down but like she's genuinely surprised like wait that's a lot of money i don't know this person this is awesome who is it and then she had to like she had a genuine moment of like oh yeah i'm glad he didn't kill himself but that does suck but that is a lot of money so that's kind of cool i didn't think he'd list me as his beneficiary like like she was genuinely surprised that like that money would come to her so it just shows you all of like this world of all these not so nice people he put all the chips in on kitty and it did not pan out for him at all oh yeah well i mean i love that he made queenie the beneficiary for sure i think that queenie deserved it i just would have loved to have seen you know i imagine myself if i was queenie and i had witnessed all of that and i successfully talked someone off the ledge the next thing that i would do is i want i would want to sit them down and say okay what's going on right now like what? Why? Why are we doing this? Let's let's talk this out. And I appreciate how, on one level, pro- they probably would have ruined the entire movie for us if they had done that. But I just really would have loved to have seen kind of some kind of bond blossom between the two of them because I think Queenie was so sweet. And to me, I just I I wish that they would have elaborated on that a little bit. See, once again, I'm taking after Kitty here. I'm not, I'm not a nice person apparently because my first thought is. Uh, you know you're paying for that window. Like, I'm, I'm happy that you didn't kill yourself, but, like, this is my place, and you kind of broke the window. So, I mean, I hate to be that guy, but... And the dresser. <laughs> you know. So, um... Note to self, don't do anything crazy at Russell's house. <laughs> it's like, I'm really glad you didn't kill yourself, at least not yet, so you can pay for the window. I mean, if you do yeah, it... Yeah, I'll be billing you, you for the window. You should, uh... You know, if you do that, do that somewhere else. You know, also good for your soul, right? I mean, hey, good job. (laughs) I'm Brian. How about you? Change one thing. I have a hard time with change one things with older movies like this because I really don't know where to go with it. I guess whatever mechanism caused me to think that this was a long movie. And again, I can't really put a finger on it, but... Too much dialogue, not enough fighting and gun gunfire? Is that, is that I, your thing? No, I mean, I, that's fine. You can go dialogue heavy. I, I literally can't put my finger on it, but whatever it was that made this feel like it was long to me. Body count. Do you need just more people dying? Is that, is that what you need? No. Like, you, no, no, I, I, like I said, I just, I don't, I can't put my finger on it, but whatever it was that made this, this seem longer than it was. If you ever rewatch it and figure it out, let me know, because now I'm curious too, because it, I, I felt like it was fast. I felt like it was fast because at 142, I was like, I, I was not, this was, this was efficient. It was a one watch for me too. It wasn't like I paused it and came back to it. So it wasn't even something I was doing. I, I just, like I said, I, it bothers me that I can't put my finger on it. Yeah, now I'm bothered too. Thanks for telling me that. 
Now you live with that forever. <laughs> Change one thing. I'm going to have to say, I want Kitty to get away with it. Like, I want her to, like, get out the bathroom, like, window like, when she goes to power her nose and, like, like to have her be on the loose. So. You would. I would. I would. <laughs> I guess we've firmly established that I'm, of the three people here on this podcast, I'm, I have the least moral fiber of all of us. So I'm, 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 on the, I'm on the whole, like, yes, con the cons, take their money, and yes. So, all right. Th- thank you. We've now established me as the bad guy. Thank you. Maybe much. all of the money could have fallen into Queenie's lap, and then Queenie would have divided it amongst all of the hotel staff. Maybe so. Maybe that would have been a good ending. Maybe yeah. some kind of big charitable thing. Probably not. I, I like the lighthearted thing of like his boss being like, yeah, all that thing that you made me like let you do. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So, yeah. You're back, coming back to the office on Monday. Ha! <laughs> so, <laughs> best quote of the movie, Lizzie. That actually, what you just said, that was my favorite. I'm kind of contradicting myself a little bit because I know I just, had said earlier in my recast that the insurance boss man is my is my recast, but I do think that his line is absolutely hilarious. It was the perfect ending to the movie of being like, "Why don't you go take some time off? You've earned it. It's Friday. Don't come back until Monday." <laughs> and it just it's like perfect. And the look he gave as he walked out of kind of just like what? And I I thought it was hilarious. And Brian, best quote of the movie. It's literally the same thing I have. All right, all right. Uh, well, well chosen. Uh, just a just a few seconds before that, but a little more of an intense moment. I got Lieutenant Sam Lebensky saying, "Don't ask a dying man to lie his soul into hell." That was a good one too. Yeah. yeah, very good, very good line. On a five star scale, Lizzie, what would you give the killers on a half star intervals? You know, I'm going to give this a four. I I think it's a solid movie. I think in terms of the time and the story and the execution and just the natural ebb and flow of the movie, I think I think it was really fantastic. It was a really fun, easy watch, and I ended the movie feeling really satisfied. I felt saw very little plot holes. And ultimately, I had fun. And that's really what I want out of a movie experience. I want the credits to roll and feel like I enjoyed myself. And I really feel like I got that out of this movie. Great choice. Ryan. Nice. Five-star scale, half-star intervals. What are you going to be? I also gave this one a four. It was a very solid movie. I think it's rewatchable. It's got a great plot. I think it led to a lot of other great things in film and very, very few flaws. But I'll also say there were very few things that absolutely wowed me. So I think that's what keeps it out of a five-star conversation. Got it. Yeah. And the, and the nagging, the nagging link. That and the nagging moment. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that tie. Yes. If it hadn't tie. been for that tie, he might have gotten. If it hadn't been star. for that tie, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go just a one a half star over you guys at four point five. I think this might be one of those movies that I think I'm finding a thing that I like, and it it's bigger than just this movie. I think I've I think I'm realizing after doing Maltese Falcon and Laura, and now this, I'm starting to I'm starting to piece together. I have another genre that in another era that I didn't realize that I liked, but I think I do. So it's bigger than that. It's like this, this movie means a genre opening of doors for me that I'm, I'm very into. So it's very, very good and rewatch as well. I did watch it a second time. And even when you know where it's going, you can appreciate 
how each character is acting actually even more in the acting performances they do so it's really good on a rewatch and i will recommend it to people nice nice brian do you want to help me pick a movie for next time i suppose so all right let's get 80s tacular what do you say radical i i'd say uh i'd say pizza dude's got 30 seconds 1980s get your big hair ready get your leotards ready get your mullets going and the hairspray going here so red dawn from 1984 it is the dawn of world war yes it is the dawn of world war three the west mountains of america a group of teenagers band together to defend their town their country from invading soviet forces uh option two big trouble in little china from 1986 a rough and tumble trucker and his sidekick face off with an ancient sorcerer in a supernatural battle beneath chinatown and Conan the Barbarian from 1982, a young boy Conan becomes a slave after his parents are killed in a tribe destroyed by a savage warlord and sorcerer, another sorcerer, Dulce's doom, and when he grows up, he becomes fearless and an invincible fighter. Set free, he plots revenge against Dulce's doom. I always hear Conan the Barbarian, and I cannot think of anything but Conan O'Brien for some reason, which is the opposite of conan the barbarian i i agree with you no it 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 does creep into the head like that so brian what'll it be i think we're gonna have to go with with a kurt classic on this one with big trouble in little china all right john carpenter too yeah all right lizzie thank you so much for coming we absolutely enjoyed having you on the show with us thanks so much for having me brian thank you for being a my noir sidekick on this one. I, I figured you would appreciate this one. That's one of the reasons I picked it. I was like, I think this is something Brian might need. I'm always game. All right. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and nice to the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us because we want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And remember that providing and producing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. Any contributions will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. A shout out to Mark for supporting us here recently. So thank you to Mark and there are other Patreon supporters here. So always much appreciated. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Do me a favor. Keep away from the windows. Someone might blow you a kiss.